This week in KMA Land, Page County continues its wind ordinance review. Good news for the Glenwood Pool. Property tax reform becomes law in Iowa, and Red Oak has a new city administrator. All that and more on This Week in KMA Land, our weekly look back at the top news stories are from our newsroom this past week. Good morning, I'm Ryan Matheny. Once again, in for the vacationing Mike Peterson. We begin this week with an update on a large expansion to Shenandoah's Green Plains location, which is expected to be finished by the end of this year. During a quarterly earnings report call on Thursday this week, Green Plains CEO Todd Becker updated shareholders on construction progress for the $50 million expansion that adds clean sugar technology to produce dextrose and fructose at the plant. Becker says construction recently went vertical after months of work on the ground. We are building a first-of-its-kind clean sugar facility sized initially to produce 200 to 300 million pounds with options to expand that to 500 million pounds in a quick manner. By diverting a portion of the corn grind, we can separate the starch and convert it to dextrose while sending the remaining protein fibers and oils back into fermentation to produce other high-value products. In addition to adding 12 new jobs at the facility, Becker says the addition of CST to Shenandoah means other companies may want to co-locate to be near the production hub. While certain volume buyers will want to validate the product once this facility starts up, we are confident in our ability to meet and even exceed our customer expectations because of the success we've had producing these innovative ingredients at our innovation center at York and the many discussions with potential customers who have trialed our products, which meets or exceeds other wet milling dextrose performance products on the market today. Becker says the expansion is currently slated to be finished in late 2023, barring any supply chain disruptions. The gating item has been electrical gear and continues to be so. We are trying every which way we can to accelerate as our construction will outpace the gear delivery. Mechanical completion is tracking for year-end, and MCC gear will determine when we turn it on. Once complete, Becker says the plan is to begin producing dextrose in early 2024. Initially, he says the company will have to clear some regulatory hurdles before being able to sell large quantities to food production companies. It will take three to six months after startup to get food safety certified, so our initial customers will be industrial, and we are, and we are seeking any discussions on early offtake agreements as we speak. Remember... We are already food safety certified in New York, so getting Shenandoah there will just be a process and time as it will be the most modern and efficient facility in the world producing this product. The Clean Sugar Expansion is the latest addition to Shenandoah's Green Plains campus, which was initially constructed in 2007 to produce ethanol. In addition to ethanol production and cattle feed, the facility produces high-protein products for use in fish and other animal feed. Page County officials continued their extensive review this week of the county's regulations regarding wind turbines. At their meeting on Thursday, the Page County Board of Supervisors reviewed two more sections of their wind energy conversion systems ordinance, permit application fees, and decommissioning requirements. The board identified several areas for review in the 2019 ordinance earlier this year. Despite some disagreement, the majority of the board members have suggested a permit application fee of $2,500 per wind turbine in the project, up from the current $250. $50 per turbine. Supervisors Chair Jacob Holmes believes there are a couple of reasons justifying the increase, including ensuring the county has an appropriate amount of resources to review the proposal and ensure both the county and developers take the application seriously. One, it costs us a lot of money to get into these things and have to put resources and time. And uh, if there's a high enough fee, it's good for the county to cover their expenses. And two, you're going to put together a good application. If your right. fee is dirt cheap and costs nothing, then then uh, people will just turn an application up here and just throw it out and do, do three more. 
Holmes added that he'd seen a wide variety of fees ranging from their current ordinance at $250 up to as high as $10,000 per turbine. However, Supervisor Judy Clark dissented from the consensus, believing the proposed fee was too high. Clark suggested that a fee uptick and some other adjustments proposed in recent weeks, including a 10-foot feeder line depth requirement, are too extreme. I think it's too high. Basically, what you're, what I see being done here is we might as well pass a policy that says no wind turbines with everything that's being done. Well, if they can't come safely. Well, I understand the safety things, but I think. Protect everybody's rights, but I don't know if maybe they can't. And I understand all of that, but I think. I think some things are going overboard. Meanwhile, regarding the decommissioning of wind turbines, Holmes says his main concern is ensuring money is set aside for the efforts and that liability doesn't fall back onto the county. Supervisor Todd Mayer suggested having developers set aside the dollars in an escrow account, to which Holmes agreed. The money that is put aside for decommissioning needs to be real money in a bank. And it's third-party reviewed every few years, which I think we have some 11 hours to that out here. But it needs to be real money, not promises or, or, or whatever, you know, real money in a bank. And most, a lot of ordinances do that. All three supervisors did agree that real dollars should be set aside with an impartial third party to assess how much money is needed. Holmes also suggested placing the dollars in one of several local banks. Mayor added they should also take in some legal review of the decommissioning requirements to ensure their bases are covered. There's a lot of things that that escrow could cover. Yeah. And you'd have to get that in a legal document as far as all the verbiage and things that you'd want. But it definitely is there to protect us on any issue. So I think that's the way to go. The board plans to continue its review next week and visit requirements for a road use agreement. Well, there are good news for Glenwood as Glenwood officials received uh, good news regarding repair efforts at the city pool. The Glenwood City Council received an update from Amber Farnan, the city administrator, on repairs at the Glenwood Aquatic Center with Erickson Construction. The repairs plagued the city last year and ultimately forced officials to stay closed for the swimming season. However, after work began earlier this year, along with JEO Consulting, Farnan says a walkthrough of the pool last week with Public Works Director Jamie Clark, Jake Zimmer from Eagle Engineering, and herself revealed some significant progress. Erickson has completed the repairs that were set out for them to do, which included... Um, seal coating, um, joint sealing around um, the edge of the pool, and then anywhere where there was like a, where panels of concrete met, they did all those joints, all got resealed, um, which meant they took out the old sealant and placed down all new sealant. She adds that crews also replaced some decking near the high dive, repaired some T-fittings in the pump house, and added an expander joint to hopefully prevent further cracking. However, Farnan says city crews are continuing to finalize repairs. They're sealing underneath the gutters near the top of the pool, and they're just going to um, seal those as a precaution. And then um, that sealant, I think, takes seven days to cure. And then once that's done, they will paint where all the sealing was done um, and do some other spot painting real quick. Once the sealants have cured and the paint's dried, Farnan says the city can fill the pool with water. She adds that plan is to refill the pool later this month. Um, the plan is to turn the water on either the second or third week of May, as long as we continue to have good weather. Um, for those for the paint to dry and and for the sealant to cure, um, and when we turn on the water, there will be representatives from JEO, from Erickson, and from Eagle Engineering, as well as 
Public Works Director. So that way, when it turns on, if there's any hiccups, we'll all be right there and we can kind of make a game plan. As of now, Farnan says the city hopes to be able to open the pool at its usual time of Memorial Day weekend or the following weekend, depending on weather. Well, Red Oak officials have found a new city administrator. At a regular meeting this week, the Red Oak City Council approved an employment agreement and formally hired Kira Smith as the city's new administrator. Council members also approved setting Smith's salary at $100,000. That decision comes after a nearly six-month-long search process. Smith will succeed interim city administrator Al Vacanti, who the council hired in December. Mayor Shauna Silvius tells KMA News that Smith brings a wealth of knowledge to the table, including experience in local government after spending the past four years as the senior purchasing manager for Johnson County, Kansas. The county there employs over 5,000 people and their community is about 788,000 people. Her procurement is a huge deal. Uh, what she does is, is very, um, it's, a, it's a high expertise looking at uh, putting things out for bid from federal and state government funding um, and working with huge large projects um, with regard to, they've just done I think a, a sewer plant and some other things. Smith also fills the vacancy of longtime city administrator Brad Wright, who retired late last year. Sylvia says Smith's work in Johnson County and over a decade of experience as a purchasing property management officer at the University of South Dakota were crucial factors in the city's decision. Her ability to work with the vendors and, and working with procurement, that is a pretty big deal when we're looking at dealing with contractors and working with engineers and doing projects. She basically was the second, is the second in line, um, and so really has a lot of uh, supervisory, not direct supervisory authority, but she does a lot with regard to supervising uh, some of the projects within their department. Sylvia adds her credentials include a bachelor's and a master's in business administration. On top of her business qualifications, Sylvia adds Smith's a Red Oak native herself and a 2002 Iowa or Red Oak high school graduate. And she's from Red Oak, so we're really excited to have her come back. Um, and I believe her husband is also from Red Oak. So uh, names that people in our community already know. And, uh, you know, this is a great opportunity for us to do what we have say, and that is bring young professionals back to our community. Meanwhile, so. Vacanti, who took on the task of navigating the city through this year's budget, thanked the council, mayor, and the community for the support as he served in the interim role. I wish I could say it was perfect, but there were... Uh, it was, it was a learning experience. It was kind of a challenge at times, but there were also some things that I think we accomplished that uh, hopefully will serve the community well. So thank you. Tentatively, Sylvia says Smith's first day will be May 31st. Lawmakers in Iowa have sent a bill to the governor with bipartisan support that would reform the state's property tax system. Earlier this week, the Iowa Senate and House both approved a bill that would make three major changes to how you pay property taxes, which is the primary way of funding local governments. State Senator Dan Dawson, a Republican from Council Bluffs, spearheaded the effort, which he says was a priority of leadership in both parties. Coming into this General Assembly, property tax reform was a bipartisan priority. It was one of the two key priorities laid out by Leader Whitver in his opening day speech. The very first bill filed by the Iowa House, a property tax bill, and leaders on both sides of the aisle spoke to needing to address this issue. We heard from Iowans about the need for property tax reform, and those echoes only became louder as the recent round of near-record valuation letters went out to Iowans this last month. One of the major impacts of the bill is a provision that would require cities and counties to lower their property tax levies in response to record increases in assessed valuations for homes and properties across the state. 
State Senator Mark Costello, a Republican from Imogene, voted in favor of the package, saying it's good for the Iowa taxpayer. Our assessments have gone up so much lately, you know, that automatically increases the tax, whether the levy rate gets changed or not. So what this will do is we'll make that uh, levy rate come down. So if there's an increase in assessments, it'll be offset with a lowering of that rate. So the, the supervisor will have the op- ability to raise that, but they'll have to take a vote to raise that tax on you. So it won't be just an automatic increase in your taxes based on uh, uh, the, the assessment. Additionally, the bill consolidates a number of city levies into the general fund, increases homestead tax credits for seniors and military, and increases public notification requirements from local governments about where tax dollars are spent. Dawson says the bill gets right at the heart of addressing rising property tax bills. One of the things that's always became clear is uh, the previous legislative bodies have always tried everything other than what ultimately taxes are. and That is basically a collection of taxes and revenue from individual property taxpayers. We've dealt with assessments, we've dealt with rollbacks, but if we're really going to reform our system, uh, became apparent, you know, when trying to focus on the homeowner and trying to focus on the actual levy itself is really ultimately the one thing we've never tried to do around here, but ultimately all the uh, roads took us back to that. The bill passed unanimously in the Senate and by a 94 to 1 vote in the House. Dawson says that's just the first step in a multi year process to overhaul the property tax system in the state. The work here isn't finished, but it's only just begun. There are a variety of topics out there that the legislature will have to confront commercial industrial rollbacks, pipeline rollbacks, homestead, education, and ultimately local government revenue diversification. Those things will be conversations we will have in the immediate years to come. Now that bill went on to Governor Kim Reynolds. She signed it into law at a special ceremony on Thursday afternoon. Still to come on this week in KMA land, area lawmakers react to some major bills that passed at the end of this 2023 legislative session, and Sydney officials are exploring some major street repairs. All that and more coming up on This Week in KMA Land. Welcome back to This Week in KMA Land. Sydney city officials have reviewed several proposed street projects in the community. During a special meeting late last week, the Sydney City Council met with Evan Wickersham of JEO Consulting, primarily regarding three proposed projects, which included a section of Fillmore, Main, and Maple Streets. Wickersham informed the council they've received previous engineer surveys of the project and met with Mayor Ken Brown to review the scope of work and redid cost estimates for all of those projects. For the Fillmore project, which council members said is their first priority, Wickersham says the price would range between $2.7 and $2.9 million, depending on whether they use new asphalt or concrete on a full-depth replacement from Indiana Street to just east of Walnut Street. Let's take out the entire street, put in an entire new street, new sidewalks through the whole stretch with ADA ramps. Um, at intersections, we remove back to the back of the return, which is back at the end of the radius, and replace that point. Also at all drives, we would replace to kind of the same point, about 10 feet from the back of the curb, just so that we have a new drive right at the tie end of the street. And he adds they'd also likely replace any of the older storm sewer inlets and piping. Wickersham says while concrete is more expensive, it typically has a longer lifespan. Meanwhile, Wickersham outlined two options for Main Street, which starts the South City limits to Clay Street, including a roughly $1.1 million mill and overlay proposal. That mill and overlay project would include uh, some full-depth patching. We estimate about 10% of the project area would need uh, full-depth patching. Um, Had limited curb and gutter replacement. We estimate about 5% of the project area for that. 
again, we would do the mill and overlay to the back of the returns at side streets. We would do new concrete drive lugouts at every concrete drive, not complete sidewalk replacement, just ADA ramps at intersections. He says the council could also go with a full depth replacement ranging from 3.2 to $3.5 million, depending on their choice between asphalt or concrete for the new surface. Wickersham says the city could get 15 to 20 years out of a mill and overlay project, but he also recommended having core samples taken to ensure there's an adequate base under the street. Finally, the longest proposed project, Wickersham says they were under the impression the city is hoping for full-depth replacement along Maple Street from the south end of town to Cherry Street. He says that that project would run between $5.6 and $6 million due to the length of the road. We looked at replacing all the existing sidewalks along that stretch, new ADA ramps, New intersection returns, uh, drive lugouts, storm sewer inlets, new pipe from the storm sewer pipe to, or storm sewer inlets to the storm sewer main. Uh, trunk lines, storm sewer trunk line were made in place, but th on this one, we did have replacing all of the water and all the sanitary sewer. Given the substantial figures to repair or replace the roads, Councilwoman Ann Travis proposed seeking out grants to assist in funding the projects, but Wickersham says his group would need a little more time to determine just how much funding could be available to the city. There are grants out there um, as far as determining what the right scope is for what grants. We need to dig into that a little deeper. I, we have some grant, grant folks on staff that when we determine what projects are what, whether they're doing mill and overlay, whether they're doing full depth replacement, then I can give that information to them and they can they can search for the best opportunity there. Wickersham says he plans to coordinate with his grant staff and the council to set up a special workshop meeting to explore funding opportunities. Well, in the waning days of the 2023 Iowa legislative session, lawmakers have continued to finalize budget numbers for the upcoming fiscal year, including the Department of Health and Human Services. This happened late last week where the Iowa Senate and House members approved a multi-billion dollar health and human services bill, Senate File 561, that included over $2.1 billion in spending, with nearly $1.5 billion going towards Medicaid services, including some federal funding. State Senator Mark Costello, who serves on the Health and Human Services Appropriations Committee, and he uh, speaks on KMA's Morning Line program this week, and the Imaging Republican said he was pleased to see lawmakers in both chambers find a consensus on the spending amount. I'm pretty happy with what we came up with on, in a eventual compromise with the Senate as we look at their priorities and ours. But one of the things we did spend a lot of money on was mental health. Uh, we know that's a big issue for a lot of people. We've, we've spent a lot of money over the years on this, obviously, and uh, but we're having a big increases this year of uh, like $13 million total in increases to, to mental health things. Along with the $13 million increase for mental health services, the budget includes nearly $50 million appropriated to a nursing facility rebate increase and $15 million dedicated to nursing home funding. Costello, who also managed the budget bill, says the hope is for the dollars to assist those facilities in providing necessary services. You know, with inflation, we've had to increase a lot of things. They're having trouble with getting staffed, and, and so we have to keep that in, in mind. We have some other things besides that $15 million that will be met with the federal money, but we kind of a, a quality assurance tax and uh, some other things that uh, kind of work internally to draw down more federal money. And uh, so they, they're we're trying to get them up to those rates where they, for the services they provide, they receive uh, money and then they'll be able to give 
raises to their employees and, and other needs that they have. Costello also highlighted a couple hundred thousand dollar increase into a program assisting veterans to find housing. Additionally, parts of Governor Kim Reynolds' health care omnibus proposal made it into the budget, including funding for the OBGYN training fellowships and regional centers of excellence grants. You know, we have a shortage in certain areas. You know, I hear about, like in Marshalltown up in northeast Iowa, they, they have difficulties, and, and a lot of babies are being born in the emergency room instead of where they should be. So we need to try and uh, get more providers in that area um, and, and as far as providing better rates and uh, providing uh, incentives for people that, to train in that area and to stay in Iowa. Budget also allots another $500,000 for the More Options for Maternal Health program, but is lighter than the $2 million expansion proposed by the governor. While not included in the budget, the Senate also approved a bill to increase the threshold for state assistance for child care costs from 145% to 160% of the federal poverty level. I think that might help with the workforce a little bit. Uh, and there was federal money that isn't, isn't any state money that we're going to appropriate another $25 million a year uh, to help with the child care uh, needs. The child care bill had headed back to the House before being sent to the governor's desk. Costello hopes that lawmakers uh, were able to wrap up the session within the next few days. You can hear the full interview with Costello with this story at kmaland.com. Let's stick in the legislature where at least one KMA Land lawmaker is pleased with the passage of a bill that increased penalties for human trafficking. The Iowa Senate unanimously passed a bill which primarily changes how the state prosecutes human trafficking and sex trafficking in the state. The Iowa House also unanimously passed the bill in March. State Senator Tom Shipley, who was pushing for similar legislation earlier in the session, tells KMA News the increase was much needed to try and deter such crimes from occurring in the state. There's no question this is a, about as hideous a crime as, as there is. And the people that, that do this sort of thing, uh, they need to go to prison for a very, very long time, at minimum anyway. And so hopefully this is going to help put a dent in that. Primarily, the bill changes the majority of human trafficking violations in the state from a Class D to a Class B felony unless the victim is under the age of 18, which would now be considered a Class A felony once the legislation becomes law. Shipley says the changes primarily come to allow for stricter prison sentences. There's different classifications which puts into play sentencing requirements. And so if you elevate those to some level to the class from a class D to a class C or C to B, then it becomes more uh, more helpful to the judicial system as far as sentencing guidelines. Once the bill becomes law, those convicted of trafficking anyone under the age of 18 could be sentenced to life in prison. Shipley made his comments on a recent edition of KMA's Morning Line program. Iowa Congressman Zach Nunn is among the lawmakers putting forward a bill aimed at improving schools' ability to protect students against cyber attacks. In the wake of a ransomware attack at Des Moines Public Schools in January that resulted in a data breach, Nunn and Democratic Representative Doris Matsui have introduced the Enhancing K-12 Cybersecurity Act. Among other things, the bill creates a K-12 Cybersecurity Technology Improvement Program, establishes a cybersecurity information exchange, and creates a cybersecurity incident registry. Speaking on KMA's Morning Line program on Monday, the Bondurant Republican says the measure focuses on preventing ransomware attacks, even from potential foreign entities. It can be a cyber criminal. It can be a you know narco cartel. It can be a foreign state actor like Russia or Iran or China who attempts to exploit a ransom of currency. Usually, uh, cryptocurrency is the pr- preferred payment. 
uh, and holds your data accountable or hemorrhages that out. The legislation would also dedicate $20 million to address school cybersecurity issues. Nunn says the educational sector is in particular need of safeguards due to the amount of information that's are, that's accessible regarding the country's youth. Whether this is their medical information they turn into the school, whether it's their personally identifying information that are kept on you know uh, school servers, or whether it's uh, you know some of the information that might be very detailed to them, uh, if they've got um, a learning capability or a challenge, as well as if there's any uh, personally identifying information about themselves or their family. Once that's breached and that information is taken uh, hostage by a foreign actor, that's something that's going to echo for them the rest of their lives. None emphasize the information exchange and incident registry, encouraging districts to report and share what happens in cybersecurity incidents. He says those crimes pose not only a threat to the respective school districts, but also to national security. You can hear the full interview with Zach Nunn with this story, as well as on our morning line page, kmaland.com. That wraps up this week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, make sure you log on to kmaland.com where you can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, I'm Ryan Matheny. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend.